Our scripture this morning is uh, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. That's page 878 in the Pew Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. This is the word of the Lord. Weeks ago, as I was planning on what we might talk about this morning, I I really was unsure, to be honest. We had journeyed through a good bit of John 21, talking about uh, a few weeks ago where Peter was restored publicly. More recently, we talked about uh, uh, Peter when he was struggling with his comparing himself and his own destiny to John's destiny. We did that last week. And, and, I, and I just perceived this Sunday as being a transitional Sunday in certain ways as we move further from the story of the resurrection of Jesus at Easter time. And I wondered, where do we go? And that's when I consulted, as I sometimes do, the lectionary. Now, how many of y'all, and raise your hand, keep them up. How many of y'all at some point have been a member or have gone regularly, let's say, to a Methodist church, an Episcopal church, Disciples of Christ Church, UCC Church, United Church of Christ, any of you? Okay, good number of you. Uh, a lot of times, uh, the person whom you will hear preaching in one of those churches, Catholic Church as well, uh, will be, they will be preaching from the lectionary. It's a, it's a year-long schedule of suggested, suggested pa- scripture passages, one from the Old Testament, one from a gospel, one from usually one of the epistles, and then maybe one from a psalm, and you choose from among those for a given Sunday. And so you can have, in a sense, all of your scripture passages mapped out for a whole year. And I thought I would consult with that. And I found it interesting that for this Sunday, the lectionary passage is this passage that uh, was just read from John chapter 21 about heaven. And I thought about that and I thought that's really appropriate because we spent the last few weeks kind of in the afterglow of the resurrection of Jesus, but, but to what degree have we celebrated and mused upon our own resurrection after we die? And I think that's why that's there and I think that that's great for us to talk about that today. And one of the great graces of heaven is that God wants everybody there. Please understand that that's good theology, that God wants everybody to be there. God doesn't want anybody to perish. 1 Timothy 2, chapter 4 says, the God who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's all people. You go over to 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's part of the wonderful grace of heaven, is that he wants everybody to be there. And in a sense, what's interesting is that his grace, that free gift of grace extends to a free opportunity for you to choose freely to become a part of it. But you need to choose to become a part of it. And that's an incredible gift, which is why the New Testament writers, I think they struggled with, wow, this is going to be such an amazing place to which we go. How do you describe it? 
Do we take all of the images of heaven in the New Testament literally? No. I think many of them are figurative images that help point the way and help us realize just how great it is because there are multiple images. You really, it, you can't have them all collide all together and have really a fair image of heaven. It, it would look like kind of convoluted anyway, but also it's all that and so much more. But they did the best they could with, you know, the, their own finite words that we use here, uh, even today in our own life, you know, in our, in our limited rationality to try to explain just how great it's going to be. But if you take all of these images and look at them collectively and, and cumulatively, you cannot help but say, hey, sign me up for that. What an incredible gift it is. Now, now, all of these images of heaven kind of point to different facets of it, and you realize just what a great gift it is. And first of all, heaven is familiar. It's not a strange place when it gets down to it. It's this familiar place that we cannot fully explain, and yet we yearn for it. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who said there's a God-shaped void in every person's life, but it, there's that sense of yearning for something familiar. Ricky, Miss Kelly, do you have John 14? My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Fabulous passage. Again, heaven as home. Think about a time when you were far away from home, or away from home for a long, long time, and you started yearning to get back. If you had to lower your pride, you would say you were homesick. Have you ever been away at a certain place where you were just so ready to get home? How many of y'all actually like camping out, by the way? How many of y'all really like that? Do you like it for days and days? Are you ready to get back home, though? Okay, I see some. I see some heads saying no. Well, that's my example. I enjoy it, but I'm always ready to get back. And again, it's all, always wonderful to get back to that place of familiarity. But there's another dimension of familiarity with a different image. It's not just this wonderful home that we can go back to for which we've always been homesick, but it's also that garden from whence we came that we yearn to get back to. Who has the passage on paradise? Doug Rigney Sr., are you here? There you go. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered them, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise, coming from the Greek word paradiso. I've talked about this a fair amount. The word for paradise there means literally what? Does anybody remember? It means garden, a king's garden, exactly. It means a garden. Was that tough? You gave the right answer? Okay. The bass player. Is he about to return? I'm really... I'm creeped out now. No, it was great. Exactly. King's Garden. <laughs> but again, think about it. The whole story begins in a garden in Genesis, and things are wonderful, and yes, paradisal, and yet the fall comes along, and we struggle with that fallenness throughout our own lives, and really there's this sense of yearning to get back to that garden, that place that we know is somewhere out there, and, and yet you know we can't quite get there, and yet you look at the very last page of the book of Revelation, and the very last image you have in all of the Bible is what? A garden. And what we're being told by God's word is you're going to get back there. If you follow Christ and surrender to him and believe that he died for you, you will get back to that garden. And what does it say about that garden in the last chapter of Revelation? It is a garden that will no longer be cursed. And as it says in Revelation 21, there will be no more mourning or pain 
or suffering or death or doubt or depression. No more illness. No more pollen. Can I get a witness on that? None of this. It's all gone. It's all gone. It is a perfect, perfect garden. The thing is, though, we realize that and we can give thanks. And and the war is ultimately won already. Christ is on his throne. And yet we are in the already but not yet, as theologians call it, that we are still yearning and groaning and just battling in this cursed world, in the present darkness of this world. And it's sometimes a struggle for us to lean into the sovereignty of God, and yet that's what we are called to do. Uh, Dave Thomas came up here and talked about uh, the walking group that comes along on Saturday mornings. I hope that you'll make it a point uh, to be there. It's wonderful, and oftentimes we'll start out with uh, a devotional. Two weeks ago, uh, Johnny Walker did it, which was appropriate. He had served in the military, has served our country, and this was uh, just after the, the Boston bombing, and he had something you know, wonderful to share about that. Just yesterday morning, uh, David talked about the sovereignty of God and that we struggle with that, that we know that God is sovereign and we believe that, but sometimes it's difficult to trust in his sovereignty amidst this very, very broken world. As Paul says, we see through a glass darkly. And, and we, you know, his, his sovereignty is familiar to us. We know that it's there, but sometimes we just struggle to believe and realize that he is sovereignly working his will through all things for good. It reminded me of something I read uh, some time ago, a book by Jerry Sitzer called A Grace Revealed. And in 1991, uh, Jerry was driving along and a drunk driver uh, jumped lanes and, and, and plowed into the minivan he was driving with his family. And uh, he survived, and three of his children survived, but one of the, the four-year-old child uh, did not survive, and also his mother was in the car, Jerry's mother, uh, and she was killed as well, along with Jerry's wife. So it was a horrible, horrible tragedy. Uh, one of his sons, uh, named David, was eight years old at the time, and as they were all over the days and weeks trying to process through this, this horrific tragedy, he was the, the main introvert in the family, the one who was least likely to talk about it. And yet there was one Saturday morning where Jerry was driving his son David to a soccer game, and, and it was a long drive. That, that particular field was pretty far away, and he said that there was this silence in the car. He said, but it wasn't a heavy silence. He described it as a liquid so- a silence. He said, you know, you could tell that, that it, things were just really brewing inside of his, his young boy and that he had something he wanted to say. And finally, David blurted out, do you think mom sees us right now? Do you think mom sees us right now, dad? And Jerry just, you know, at first didn't know what to say. He said, I don't know, David. I think maybe she sees us. And he said, why do you ask? And the young boy said, well, you know, heaven, I always thought was supposed to be a place full of joy and happiness. And and how could she bear to be watching us, especially at these times when we're sad and we're missing them and everything? And Jerry sat there in silence for a few minutes. And then, then he said, you know, I think she does see us. But he said, I think she also sees through us and beyond us because she now sees the whole story and how it's going to turn out. She sees it in fullness now because of where she is and who she's with. And she sees how it's all going to end and how it all turns out. And David, it ends wonderfully. And we're a part of that amazing, wonderful story. And that's where you and I are, and and we know how the story ends, and yet we've got to confess sometimes it's difficult to lean into that sovereignty of God, who really is the author of all of this amazing journey and this story that you and I get to be a part of, and yet in the end, this familiar story does end well for us. It's a marvelously 
mysterious yet familiar story that beckons us on this wonderful journey toward eternity. So heaven is familiar. It's also together. It's familiar. It's family. It's together. I get asked that sometimes. Will we recognize each other when we get there? Absolutely. It's, it's very communal. In fact, if there's one uh, uh, message that we receive, I think more than any other, given the New Testament images, it's that there is community there. There is togetherness there. And most every image that you find is plural. It's in the collective. You just see that in there. And I thought I would use as a springboard one of my favorite images of heaven, which you find in Hebrews, which, which the writer of Hebrews really likes to talk about heaven as rest. And, and that's just wonderful. And, and, and again, I, I think it, it talks about not just individuals resting, but the people of God resting together. And it's not a, a passive rest, but one in which we are... A, a, after all of our labors and we realize our labors are not in vain, we just kind of celebrate that as we do with family on the porch in the evening or at the beach on a deck, wherever it might be. That's the image that he's talking about. So let's listen to that image of rest and how it's there for all of us. Dwight Patterson, can you read that? There are Sabbath rest for the people of God. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore Okay, it talks about there is a rest for the people of God. It's collective. It's always talking about it as collective. You go on to Revelation 21 that was read earlier. It talks about the heavenly city. City obviously points to community, and it talks about how we will be God's people, and he will dwell with us. It really is the culmination, eternity is, of, of our theme this year of real people, real life, real love. It's experiencing that in all of its purity and fullness at that point. The writer of Hebrews also talks about heaven as a community in, in the list of heroes of the faith. In uh, Hebrews 11, it talks about Abraham, who looked forward to a city whose builder and maker is God. And it describes this heavenly city where it makes us realize that in a sense, we are strangers and aliens passing through this world, and we're longing for a country uh, that's a little bit different from our own. Brad Key, do you have that in Hebrews 11? Always die in faith without receiving promises. But having seen them, having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, to those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Okay, that's a great translation you used, too. That picks it up beautifully. There's this familiar country we know of that is out there that we yearn for, and, and we can't quite picture it yet, but we yearn for it. And it's a heavenly city there for all of us, and we yearn to get to it. And, and, and again, that's us. That's us in eternity, and it's something we yearn for. And the great gift about it is it's a place of reunion. Uh, I love the story of Dr. Van Alken, uh, Sheldon Van Alken, who was a protege of C.S. Lewis, the great apologist in English and uh, classics professor over at Oxford. 
And, and uh, they were having lunch at a pub one day because this was going to be the last day that Dr. Van Alken was going to see C.S. Lewis before he took an appointment to teach stateside over in the United States. And he didn't know if he would ever see C.S. Lewis again. So they went and had lunch and they talked about a lot of deep things, even theological stuff about you know, life and death and everything else in between. And then they uh, finished their meal and stepped outside onto the sidewalk and were just engaging in some small talk. And finally, C.S. Lewis realized that he needed to go back to teach his next class. And so he started to cross the street. And as he did, he said, we shan't say goodbye. We'll meet again. And then he crossed this street, and the street became busy again. And, and, and as he kept walking, he had this sense, apparently, that Dr. Van Alken was still watching him because then C.S. Lewis swung around and shouted out above all the traffic and everything, besides Christians never say goodbye. Christians never say goodbye. And he's right. And again, it's a time of, as, as John Claypool used to say, glad reunion. And, and you think of images of glad reunion that you have had when you've been away from someone for a long time and then you're reunited with them and it's just amazing. Now let me ask, not a lot of people have seen this in the first, uh, first hour. And it's out now as of today on uh, DVD, and you can rent it now and, and charter and other places. But, but how many of y'all have seen The Impossible, the movie The Impossible? Anybody, oh, my goodness. Is it, okay, it's a great movie. Naomi Watts is in it, and the guy who's the young Obi-Wan McGregor. What's his first name? Ian McGregor, yeah. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie, and it's based on a true story of a European family. It's really a Spanish family. They were uh, in Thailand at a resort when the tsunami hit in 2004, and it's a very intense movie, especially the early tsunami scenes are just really, really intense. But it's this true story about how this family gets separated. Uh, the father gets separated from the rest of them, ultimately. The two very youngest kids are separated from everybody else, and then Lucas, uh, the oldest son, along with the mother who's terribly injured, you know, are separated, and they just cannot find each other for days, and it's an amazing true story. And uh, there's a scene at the end, which you really won't appreciate today as much until you see the movie, but you just see all these trials that they go through and all the mass confusion they do just trying to track each other down, but then they do, and and this is not really a spoiler because everybody knows if you read the news, they did find one another. But it's a wonderful reunion scene, incredible story. Uh, It's kind of intense, but uh, you might uh, enjoy the movie. But again, I just love that reunion scene. But the more I watch that, uh, the other day, the more I realized, you know, it's, it's going to be a little bit different for us because the great reunion we have once we get to eternity, once we enter into that, it's not going to be like we're in the midst of a whole lot of strangers in a strange place. It's going to be family in a familiar place, and we will be welcomed with great joy, and that's the nature of it, and that's made clear again and again and again in Scripture. The movie is entitled The Impossible, and I think in a way, eternity is the impossible. I mean, it's this impossible gift. It's, 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 you know, what is impossible for us, obviously, is po- possible for God, but this, this resurrection that you and I experience along with Jesus is this impossible gift, this impossible reality, this impossible grace that you and I get to receive together. Okay, I'll go on and answer a question that some of you want to ask about. I was asked about it in between services, and I did mention it in the first service because people say, well, you know, there's someone I had that was family named Sparky or Fido or whatever. You know, what's, you know where I'm going with this. Uh, I truly believe, and I think it's sound theology to say, not just because they're family, that 
those animals that have come to mean a lot to us will also be in eternity. I believe very firmly, as it says in the Gospel of Mark, that the Gospel was proclaimed to all creation, and that, as it says in Colossians, that wonderful, mysterious passage where it says Christ is reconciling all creation, all the world, to himself. So my answer to you is yes. So I hope uh, you don't mind me sharing that. I see, I see a lot of smiles, so that's good. I thought I would throw that in. I almost said I thought I'd throw you that bone. I didn't mean that, but uh, <laughs> it's bad. So heaven is familiar. Heaven is together. And, and perhaps most significantly, heaven is secure. Again, Revelation 21 talks about how there's no more tears, there's no more pain, there's no more grief, there's no more confusion, there's no more disappointment, there's no more failure, there's no more burden or burden of doubt. The list goes on and on. There's no more of that. And it's something that, that is giving, given to us free and, and unearned. It really is like an inheritance. In fact, uh, who's got it? Is it a brand? First Peter uh, 1, verses 3 and 4. It's an inheritance that's sealed, kept in, her- in heaven for you, and it's unblemished, it's undying, it never perishes, and it's there for you. You inherit something from someone, most likely you're given a little bit more security. It might be financial. It might be a shelter, you know, over your head, whatever it might be. You're given a little bit more security. But 29 times in the Bible, it talks about inheriting the kingdom, inheriting heaven. And again, it's such a blessing, and it reminds us what a gift heaven is. And it's not something that we're entitled to. It's just freely given. By a death, you receive an inheritance in this life. By Jesus' death on the cross... That's the greatest of inheritances that you have received. But it's also frequently called a victory. And again, it's full, unadulterated victory. I mean, you know, whenever there's a victory from a war, usually that's just sowing the seeds of later wars, later battles. But this is ultimate, pure victory in its most final sense, which, which I think is just so incredibly difficult to fathom. But that is what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15. Doesn't he, Maggie Hightower? Gives us the victory. I gave Maggie the longest passage because the other, the rest of y'all wasn't sure about as far as being able to get through it. I knew Maggie could do it. It's it's ultimate pure victory with nothing behind it, nothing past that as far as any future. Think about this: any future conflict, any future hostility, any future violence, any future injustice. It's done. I mean, sign me up for that. I love the way Peter Krept, who's a wonderful theologian and philosopher, he says. Imagine the day when sin, death, and evil are finally defeated by Christ. 
He said, let me put it another way. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future, and you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, despite your sin, despite your smallness, despite your stupidity, you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless in singing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Less, a scratch on a penny. Let me read that again. To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Less, a scratch on a penny. It's ultimate victory. No more pain, no more oppression, no more poverty, no more depression, whatever it might be. And it's all this and more. When I try to encapsulate all these images from the New Testament about what heaven will be like, I'm always thrown over to 1 Corinthians 2, 9, which says this, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. We cannot even begin to fathom how good it will be. When I begin to muse on, meditate on, celebrate all these different ways that we can look at heaven, I just always get bumped to that passage, and it's like all this and more, the most incredible of inheritances, the most incredible of gifts. But it's up to you and me to make the choice to become a part of it. Again, God wants everybody in, and he gives that to you unconditionally and, yes, freely, but that grace extends to your free capacity to choose to become a part of it. The question is, have you done that yet? No doubt he wants you in, but have you accepted that incredible, incredible invitation? I like the way St. Isaac the Syrian, who was a 7th century mystic, put it. He said, prepare your heart for departure. If you are wise, you will expect it every hour. Are you ready for your departure, whatever day it is, whatever hour it is, whatever moment it is? Are you prepared to be there? Let's bow our heads and enter into a moment of meditation. And first of all, I simply want you to consider some burden that you have right now that's causing you a great deal of stress, a great deal of fear, a great deal of uncertainty. Maybe you're feeling rather aimless or directionless about a a, a question or a choice you have to make, whatever it might be. And if you would, just lay that at the feet of God, realizing that in the long run, it pales in comparison. It is like a millionaire scratching a penny again pass that over to him and if you would in the midst of that struggle give thanks for this amazing gift of grace that we call eternity just do that right now Take a moment now and throw all your worries, all your angst, all your stressors into the past and just consider in your own mind and your heart just how amazing it's going to be one day, especially with all of us together.
how good it's going to be, oh God. And we thank you for that gift given <laughs> with such freedom, such boundless love. And now I want you to pray silently for anyone in this room who might not have made that choice yet. Again, we're wise enough in here to realize this just doesn't have to do with some transactional praying of a sinner's prayer. That, that can be a good thing, but it's much more than a mere transaction. It's a relationship. You're not just saved from something. All the more you're saved to something, a relationship with Christ that begins even now. And if you have not surrendered yourself over to Christ yet, this would be a great moment for you to do just that and perhaps even make it public in just, just a minute. But just pray for anyone in here who might be struggling with that decision. shortcomings, our dysfunctions, our illnesses, uh, our stressors, and just celebrate the pure goodness of one another, and even more so the pure goodness of being face-to-face with you. We anticipate that and joyfully give thanks for it, and pray that uh, we would all be there as you so desperately want us all to be there. Just as we yearn to get back home and get back to the garden, you yearn for us to be there. May we always remember that. So, Lord, help us to commit ourselves anew in celebration and commitment until we see you face-to-face to continue to fight the battle and live our lives here with real life and real love and, yes, real community. As we stand together and sing, O God, may we sing with fullness of heart as one voice in full commitment to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.